pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The sky is falling, or at least Chicken Little thought that it was. And what did Chicken Little get for running around and trying to warn all everyone around about the fact that the the danger that was imminently approaching, they all got eaten by a fox, right? Parents have been telling their children that story for generations now to pass on a lesson, an important lesson, that just because people are saying that destruction is coming doesn't mean that it necessarily is. Don't worry, kids. The sky isn't falling is the lesson. But what would happen one day if the sky actually was falling? And no matter how hard you tried to warn those you loved, you couldn't get them to listen. That was a situation that Isaiah found himself in. He found himself trying to warn his people that destruction was coming in their future. But they wouldn't listen, no matter how much he pleaded with them, no matter how much He warned them. And so after some time of warning them and them not listening, what did he do? Well, he decided to try something different. He decided to sing them a song. Maybe something like this. My beloved had a vineyard that he cared for in every way. That's Isaiah chapter 5. Would you turn there with me? In this text, as we look at it, we're going to see that Isaiah, who has been warning his people of coming destruction, stops to sing a song. And he sings a song, and then he takes time to explain the song, and then finally he applies the song to their situation. We're going to walk through each of those as we go, and we'll read as we go. So the first section, uh, Isaiah sings this song, and the summary there is that a vineyard yields bad fruit despite every effort. That's the message of the song. Would you follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 6? Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled on. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain No rain upon it. A few observations here. In verse 1, we see that Isaiah has an essential, absolutely essential character trait for someone who's going to preach 
or prophesy God's words. He's in love with the God he serves. You see that twice in verse 1? That he calls God his beloved? He's not detached as he says these words. He can't be. He's in love with the God that he speaks of. But as the Apostle John would remind us hundreds of years later, we love because he first loved us. And so that's true for Isaiah as well. And so in the next verses, he goes into a description of how the God that he loves has shown love to his people. He uses the illustration of a vineyard owner and a vineyard. Let's unpack it for a moment. Uh, In verse 2, we see that the vineyard owner has done absolutely everything possible to maximize his chances of getting good grapes. He has aerated, he has irrigated, he has built walls to protect. Whereas most vineyard owners would have just put up a hut to guard against intruders, he put up a watchtower. Do you see that in verse 2? A full watchtower. Surely in Isaiah's audience, there would have been many vintners. It was a common profession. And any vintner hearing this would have been horrified at the end of verse 2 when Isaiah says that despite all of these efforts, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. It's agonizing. And so in verse 3, we hear the vineyard owner himself speak. Judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, can anyone find any way in which I am at fault for this bad grape harvest? And in verse 4, the vineyard owner elaborates, What more could I possibly have done? And any vintner hearing this would have said, There's nothing you could have done, nothing more. You did everything. You took every measure you could have done. And then when there's nothing left to do, There's nothing left to do. So in verses 5 and 6, the vineyard owner makes a decision. He's going to let this vineyard go to waste. He's going to allow it to be destroyed. He's going to take down the hedge, tear down the wall. Wild animals come on in, intruders come on in, and all that's going to be left is a trampled down mess of briars and thorns, according to verse 6. Even here, though, we see that there's at least two ways in which this vineyard owner is no ordinary vineyard owner. For one, he's abnormally powerful. Um, Has anybody ever been to Wagner Farm in Glenview? Or maybe any of the other farms in the area? I've gotten to know the folks over at Wagner Farm, great people. What I've never encountered over at Wagner Farm is the folks over there, they have, you know, little kids groups come in and give field trips. I've never encountered them saying, uh, being able to command the clouds and the clouds obey. Right? Like, hey, we've got a, a, a big group. Hey, Clouds, we've got a big group coming in today. They're really excited about the hayride. So we're going to need you to hold off on the rain today. Thanks. Never seen it. But yet here, in verse 6, that's exactly what this vineyard owner can do. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. He's abnormally powerful. But he's not only abnormally powerful, he's exceptionally loving. He goes farther than any other vineyard owner would spares no expense whatsoever. He's made every effort to tenderly care for his vineyard, yet it's yielded only bad fruit. So that's the song in verses 1 through 6. It's about a vineyard, and it's about a vineyard owner. And Isaiah sings it in the form of a song because he's desperately trying to get the attention of a people who are saying to Isaiah things like, the future can't be so bad, Isaiah. Look at us, we're, we're prospering. Or they're saying things like, Isaiah, we're not so bad. We're not as bad as you make us out to be. And after all, look at the nations around us and how bad they are. Isaiah's not getting through, so he sings it in the form of a song. 
now that he has their attention after singing the song in verses 1 through 6, he's now going to explain that the song is about them. Let's take a look at that in verses 7 through 24. Hang with me here because this is a longer section of text to read. Follow along with me. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled. And each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel." There's a lot in there. Verse 7 is a summary of the whole thing. The very first verse we read. Um, In verse 7, we see uh, a summary that um, the Lord of hosts is the vineyard owner. Israel and Judah are the vineyard and the vines. And what's the bad fruit? Well, I'm summarizing it this way. Israel has trampled on its covenant obligation of social justice. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what I'm looking at is right there in verse 7. What's he looking for? Justice and righteousness. And what's he getting instead? What's the bad fruit? Bloodshed and outcry. So we're going to walk through that. Verses 8 through 24 elaborate on that. For, and, but we need to take a moment here and just talk about this uh, term social justice. Just to make sure we're all on the same page with that. And make sure that uh, anyone who's um, worried that we'd be leaving behind the gospel to talk about social justice um, knows that we're doing exactly the opposite. Um, there are enough voices nowadays saying that any church that talks about social justice has left the gospel, that this is going to be an important kind of aside for us. So we're going to take a few minutes to go here, talk about a definition, validity, conviction, and what it has to do with Isaiah. 
So first, we've talked about social justice here before. Two years ago in our Amos series, uh, we showed that in that book. Um, when we're talking about that here at North Sub, I want to make sure we're clear on how we're defining that. The word's been used since about 1840 for many, most of those years. It's been used mostly by Christians. In recent years, it's been uh, picked up by people who aren't Christians. And so nowadays, if you talk to 10 different people, you might get 10 different definitions of social justice. When we use that term here at North Sub, we're just referring to it in its most general, broad sense. That is, doing justice in the arena of social relationships. Acting justly in the, in the area of social relationships, people relationships in our lives. Um, and we'll unpack that as we go. But that raises the question, though, of validity. Like, is it valid to use a term like social justice when that term isn't found in the Bible? Right? That's an argument against using this term. Uh, people say, well, you're being unbiblical by talking about social justice in church because I can't open up my Bible anywhere and find the term social justice there. Of course, we second-guess that thought when we think that those same voices don't get upset when we use the term trinity or when we use the term abortion or when we use any number of terms that aren't actually found in Scripture but that are summaries of ideas that are found in Scripture. Um, So we, we acknowledge that it's important sometimes to engage with terms that aren't found in Scripture but are summaries of scriptural ideas. So what is the scriptural idea being summarized when we use the term social justice? It's the two terms translated justice and righteousness in verse 7. They pop up again uh, later in the chapter uh, in verse 16 in tandem. 30 plus times in the Old Testament, these two terms get used together, justice and righteousness. And just to remind you of this is, you know, we talked about all this during the Amos series, but just a reminder um, because it's very important that we're not uh, causing anyone to stumble or being unclear here. This is from Tim Keller just explaining these two terms. These two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is the Hebrew term mishpat. That's the one that's translated justice in our text. It means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. So in other words, something unjust has already been done, and then mishpat, justice, is making sure those who did the wrong get punished and those who were wronged get cared for. On the other hand, primary justice, or zadikah, that's the Hebrew word, is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would already be living in right relationship to everyone else. So it's before the fact and after the fact, two elements of it. And so they appear in tandem and we are using the term social justice, as many have, to summarize those two elements of righteousness and justice that scripture talks about so often. Uh, And we're at the beginning of Isaiah It's a long book, and it talks a lot about these two terms. And so it's important that we kind of get on the same page here uh, right off the bat. It brings me to a question that I want to ask, though, as we get into this. If you're feeling some kind of resistance about us talking about social justice here at uh, North Sub, that's okay. I just want us to think about this question, though. Am I worried about us talking about social justice because I'm worried that we're going to lose the gospel? Maybe. Or is it possible that I'm worried about us talking about social justice because here on the North Shore in 2019, we're all living in a place in which we find ourselves wealthy from a global perspective, 
find ourselves privileged from a global perspective, and this discussion actually indicts me in some ways. It convicts me in some ways, right? Uh, I wonder about that. You know, and to, as a kind of diagnosis as to where my own heart's at, I want to ask myself, okay, when, when my church talks about um, sexual sin, or when my church talks about stealing, if I don't go to the church and say, why are we talking, why are we losing the gospel to talk about these sin issues, then I should wonder why I feel the same thing when, I'm, when social justice comes up and suddenly I think that it's leaving the gospel. It may be because it's just hitting on an idol that's in my heart. That's what I'm trying to explore as we work through Isaiah for myself personally. So what does all this have to do with Isaiah? Um, as I said, 14 times this comes up in the book. We get excited when we hear we're preaching Isaiah because as many people have called Isaiah, it's the fifth gospel, right? 700 years before Christ, there's time and time again in this book that there are messianic prophecies about this branch that is coming, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this child who's going to be born that somehow is going to be called everlasting father and mighty God. How could this be? And then in chapter 53, this suffering servant who's going to be wounded for the sake of us all. But I wonder if we might be more like Isaiah's hearers in his day than we'd like to admit. They wanted the good news too. The messianic prophecies, they were all about that. But the rest of the 66 chapters of Isaiah that talk heavily about social justice and injustice and convict of sin, they weren't really there for that. We, you know, we'd like to imagine that we would be big Isaiah fans if we were there during his day, right? But we forget that Isaiah was hated in his day, as were many of the prophets. We forget that if we would have been there back in the day, our friends, almost everybody around us, would have been saying, Isaiah, stick to the good news. Why are you giving us these social issues? Sound familiar? I don't want us to be the people who think that we'd be fans of Isaiah um, when Isaiah kept preaching a gospel that had implications for how people interact with one another until he was sawn in two at the end of his life. The bottom line is that I'm worried our enemy is succeeding in getting us sidetracked in an argument about whether or not we should be using the term social justice when what the Bible's a lot more concerned about is having us look in our own hearts and see how we should be doing justice and how we're not doing justice. So, save just a minute or two here to go into a brief exposition of verses 8 through 24. Um, with that in mind, of the specific social injustices that Isaiah notices. So, I'll just kind of rattle off a couple of them. Verses 8 through 10, we see that people are engaged in the social injustice of land grabbing. Verses 8 through 10. The people of Israel were supposed to be content with their fairly parceled land, but instead we see in verses 8 through 10 people joining house to house, joining field to field, squeezing out the little people, so to speak, in society, and creating increased distance between the haves and the have-nots. And so I don't know about you, but when I read that, I say, okay, first example, I'm safe. I don't own any land. I don't have an acre of land to my name. I'm not guilty on this score. Check that box, right? But then I think to myself, is my heart really any different than these people's or is it just that I haven't accumulated enough wealth yet to be able to pull off what these people were pulling off? Right? I think specifically about my friends who have been investing in real estate and 
The wisdom on investing in real estate is you get property in a place that's ready to gentrify in the city. Meaning that maybe right now it's a mostly black neighborhood, but it looks like it's poised to become a place where some wealth from the city and some white families are moving in. You want to buy on the front end of that. And then what happens over time? What will happen is the property values will go up and you make money on your investment. And also what will happen, of course, is that as those property values go up, the property taxes go up in that neighborhood and the families that have lived there for generations suddenly won't be able to live there anymore. And what happens in neighborhood after neighborhood is that the makeup and demographic changes as the people who have lived there for generations get squeezed out in favor of new families. Now, have I not invested in that because my heart is so much better than that and so above that? As I thought about it this week, I'm just not quite sure that that's the case. I wish I could say that it is. But I'm not so sure that it's really not just because I didn't have money a few years back when my friends were doing this and wasn't able to jump in on that investment. I wonder if I'm so different from Isaiah's hearers, in other words. What other injustices? Verses 11 and 12, 21 and 22. Wealth has cultivated the social injustice of arrogant drunkenness. It's an issue of attention, right? These people's attention is on what they can consume and imbibe to please themselves. Their focus is on what goes down their throats. And so according to verse 13, nothing is going to go down their throats anymore. Their focus is on opening their mouths wider and wider to take in. And so in verse 14, the grave opens its mouth wider and wider to take them in. And again here, when I read this, I say, well, I'm safe on this one. I've never been drunk a day in my life. So at least I can check this box and feel good about this part of it. But then I think, the root sin here though, like the root heart issue of seeking and putting my attention on my own pleasure as opposed to what God is doing in the world around me. Am I really innocent on that score? For example, when I indulge in uh, long periods of time on social media and just get lost in it or if I go on a Netflix binge or if I uh, feast unnecessarily and inappropriately and overeat? Is my heart really in any different place than these people? Haven't I taken my attention off of God and what he's doing in the world around me to focus on just filling my own needs and indulging? So I'm not so sure I'm innocent on that score anymore. What else? We could look at verse 20. Where seemingly enlightened people are pushing the social injustice of moral relativism. And I call moral relativism a social injustice because, for example, when it's taught in our schools, it's incredibly harmful to our children. The idea that what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me. And don't call evil what I call good because I'll decide whether it's good for me or not. That's an injustice. And Isaiah groups it as such under that heading. And on this one, I'm like, well, I'm sure that I'm innocent, right? I'm a pastor. I'm a conservative Christian pastor. Uh, I'm, I'm spending a lot of my days trying to fight against the ideas of more relativism. But then I think, I think about times when I've gotten angry and had an argument with my wife. And then she's told me afterwards, I didn't like that you got angry there. And what do I say? Well, I'm sorry you interpreted that as anger. That wasn't really anger. Right? That was just passion. I just care so deeply about our family and about you that I just got emotional about it. Or if I'm being lazy sometimes and somebody calls me on that, I say, no, 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 I'm not lazy. 
I'm just valuing what God calls us to and rest, right? I'm not overworking, right? But what am I doing in that, right? Aren't I doing what verse 20 says, calling evil good, calling darkness light? And I realized this week I may not be above the injustice of moral relativism and trying to pass it on to others and my son watching me do that. You get the idea. Verses 22 and 23 is probably one last one that we should note. It's something that happens in every society. Injustice never remains in the realm of the individual and the personal only, right? Because people like you and me who have injustice in our hearts, as I've, trying to lay out, I've been trying to lay out here, inevitably, when we sit down to create systems and structures, inevitably, the injustice in our heart creeps into the systems and structures we create. How could it not, right? And so we call it systemic or structural injustice, and it's right to do so. We see it happening in verse 23, where this injustice has worked its way into the courtrooms and into the halls of administration in Isaiah's day, so that rulings and, uh, and verdicts are now tainted by the injustice in the hearts of the people. In all of this, I hope you can see, I think you see, that you know, I just really do believe it's so unfortunate that we're getting hung up on whether or not social justice is worth preaching about when the Bible and Isaiah is so concerned with making sure we're convicted of the times in which we are all perpetrators of social injustice. That's the bad fruit that he talks about in verses 8 through 24. So think back to the song here at the end of our second uh, point. We know who the vineyard owner is now. That's God. We know who the vineyard is now. That's Israel and Judah. We know what the fruit is now. That was social injustice. But what we haven't seen yet, the last piece, is what did God mean when he said that vineyard is going to be trampled on? Right? I mean, after all, we're talking about God's people in God's land and who worship at God's temple. So surely God doesn't mean, or does he? Let's take a look at these last several verses, verses 25 to 30, where God applies the song, or Isaiah applies the song. Follow along with me. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away. And whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint. And their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions when they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Remember that this is the God who tenderly cares for his vineyard. Remember also that this is the God who can command the clouds and they obey. We see here that that God is never out of control. He's never out of options. And so even after his people persist in disobedience and yielding bad fruit, he's not stuck. He has a course of action. He removes their protection and allows them to be destroyed. And he's very specific here about how it'll happen. And it's horrifying in what we just read. It's going to come through an enemy invasion. Enemy armies coming in and attacking God's people. 
These armies, according to verses 27 or 29, are going to have impeccable training. They're going to have unmatched equipment. They're going to have a merciless attitude. And by verse 30, we see that what it will all result in is the light going out, so to speak, on Israel. All that will remain, corpses in the streets, verse 25. That's the penalty for their bad fruit. But I don't know about you, the most disturbing thing to me in these last few verses is not the corpses in the streets, and it's not even people being carried off without anyone to help. The most disturbing part of verses 25 to 30 for me is how this comes about in verse 26. Did you notice that? How the invasion got launched? Like, I'd like to think it was this enemy nation who was scheming up and saying, hey, I think we've found a weakness in Israel's defenses, and if we go at just the right time and we give a really good plan, we're going to be able to exploit the breach and attack. Whether or not that happened, that's not how Isaiah characterizes it. Isaiah can see that what really is happening, what causes this attack, verse 26. God whistled for the foreign nations, the foreign armies, like a dog, like a person calling attack dogs. He whistles and they come to do his bidding. How could this be, right? These nations that God whistles in to attack his people, they're at least as wicked as Israel, if not more. At least as godless. So how could God use them to destroy his own people? That's the question that the people of Israel were asking as well when they heard Isaiah say this. And throughout the rest of the book, Isaiah is going to, at several points, address that very question. What we should say at this point, though, as we wrap up this third section of the text, is that our God is sovereign over human history. That means he's sovereign over all the nations and all the armies and all the rulers of the earth. That means that he can summon them at any time to do his bidding, to do his will. And that may even involve sometimes calling on one wicked nation to exercise his judgment on another wicked nation. We'll have to save a fuller explanation of that for future chapters. But for our purposes today, I want to close out with this big idea and just a moment of reflection on it. Let us produce fruit before God says our time is up. I think that's the call from this chapter this dark chapter, there's no, there's no hope at all in this chapter as written. Did you notice that? Let us produce fruit before God says our time is up. And you might say, you know, our, our time isn't coming up. This is talking in Isaiah's day, and they had exile coming. Exile has already happened, right? But let's not forget that in the New Testament, the risen Jesus can speak to the church at Ephesus and say, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. In other words... If you don't turn to me, you won't have a church anymore. And we've, many of us have lived long enough to see churches, once faithful, have to close their doors. Uh, by God's grace, North Sub has been here 60 plus years, and we're hoping for another 60 plus years of faithfulness here on the corner of Lake Cook and Waukegan. But let's remember, though, that God has never promised us that. God has never promised us that this building would never be turned into a senior center or a bowling alley. Our hope, the reason we feel hopeful and we are praying to God that that won't come to pass is because we get to hear this word today and respond to it. 
in Isaiah 5. We get to hear God speak in the scriptures and respond. And what results may have a lot to do with our attitude with which we hear it. So our question is, will we have the attitude of Isaiah's hearers who said, listen, come on, it's not so bad. We're not so bad. Or will we have a different attitude, an attitude that says, Isaiah is right about us. And in fact, when I look in my own heart, I know that Isaiah didn't say the half of what's true about the wickedness in my own heart. And so, Lord, I humble myself before you and I repent and I turn. If our attitude is the latter, we may, the Lord may well have in store another season of great blessing for North Sub. If our attitude is the former, it may only be a matter of time before we hear that dreadful whistle. I hope you've heard this morning that this isn't a rebuke by any means. This is a plea. Let's not miss it. May it not be said of North Sub that the prophets spoke to us in God's word and we responded by saying, it's not so bad. Let's take seriously the last verses of this chapter. Um, Let's let ourselves dread that. And if that dread isn't enough to humble us, let me just uh, take one more minute of your time and take this plea one step further by taking it to Jesus. Our Lord Jesus. He knew Isaiah 5. In fact, he took the content of this song in Isaiah 5 and he turned it into several parables that he used on different occasions. On one occasion in Matthew 21, here's what Jesus said. He started out his parable like this. There was a vineyard owner who put a wall around his vineyard, built a vat into it, and even raised up a watchtower. Does that sound familiar? But then Jesus continued the parable and took it a different direction. When the vineyard owner couldn't get fruit, you know what happened in Matthew 21 as Jesus told that parable? What step did the vineyard owner take? He sent his son into the vineyard. So I don't know about you, when I read Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, that we read at the beginning of our time together, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? It moves me that on this side of the cross, we know that there's an answer to that question. There was actually one more thing that God had not yet done in Isaiah's day for his vineyard. He hadn't yet sent his son. On this side of the cross, we can see not only all the tender care that God had shown to his people before Isaiah's day, but we can see the ultimate love, act of love that God showed to his people by coming, the Son of God coming into the vineyard himself to die in the place of those who had rejected him and given him only bad fruit. If the dread of Isaiah 5 doesn't move us to humility and repentance, let's let that vision of our Lord Jesus coming into the vineyard, dying in our place, move us to produce fruit before God says our time is up. Let's pray. Oh Lord, even in a passage like this that lacks hope, it's exclusively darkness. reminded of your great love as this passage is situated in redemptive history that you even took one more step that you did not need to take. You could have left us in your sin, but instead you sent your son to live among us and ultimately to die 
at our hands, but in accordance with your plan to reconcile us to yourself. And Lord, we're so grateful for that. Let that gratitude that we feel in our hearts for what Jesus has done for us in the events that we celebrate this week on Holy Week, Lord, let that gratitude well up and empower us to bear fruit through your power, through the power of your spirit. And let the time never come up for North Sub. Let this church have years and generations even of fruit, good fruit, ahead of it by your grace and by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.